This morning we have two readings, first from Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, and the second one is from Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 through 22. Listen to God's word. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for it, look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should I why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, Leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree on the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately, the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you please, uh, well, actually, before we pray, I meant to mention this to you. Uh, for those of you who may be uh, just uh, starting to attend here at Ebenezer, you're not aware, during the series that we're doing on Jesus, we're inviting people to pick up one of these free journal books so you can take notes and write, up, write about your reflections and things the Lord is teaching you. We're also encouraging you to memorize one scripture verse per month, and we have these little stickers that you can pick up. They're in little uh, wicker baskets at the welcome desk as you leave in the narthex. Just feel free to pick one of these up, and you can... Uh, stick it in your, your book and uh, use that to help you memorize the Scripture. It's really a good and healthy thing to hide God's Word in our heart to memorize Scripture, and uh, we'd encourage you to do that. So uh, be sure to take advantage of that after the service. Let's bow our heads now and let's pray. Lord, we ask now that Your Word, which is true, which is power, which is life, would be truth for our hearts, empowering us to live the life You call us to live. Now and always, we humble ourselves before your word and submit our hearts and minds to it, knowing your spirit will do a good work through it. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Moneyball is the name of a movie that came out in 2011 starring Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill. It's actually based on a book that came out a few years earlier, a book that focuses on the 2002 season of the Oakland Athletics. Really, the the story focuses on Billy Bean, who's the general manager of the Oakland Athletics, and he grew tired of losing his superstar players to other teams that could afford to pay those players a lot more money. The Oakland A's, a small market baseball team, had a smaller payroll, and they couldn't keep their superstars. When their superstars became free agents, they would leave to go to other teams to get more money, and it frustrated Billy Bean. But he kept having to rebuild his team all the time, He wondered if there was another way to build a championship baseball team besides just throwing big dollars at big-name players. And he hired a young assistant named Peter Brand who had no experience in professional baseball. In fact, Peter had recently graduated from Yale University with a degree in 
economics. But Peter knew statistics. He knew numbers. He knew economics. And uh, he and Billy Bean began to look for a way to change the way they evaluated and recruited players. See, back in those days, scouts kind of evaluated players on certain intangibles, the way they stood in the batter's box, the way they looked in a uniform, the way the ball would explode off the bat. They took into account some numbers, but but they really were, were focused on how a player looked and whether a player had potential. But Peter Brand convinced Billy Bean to go by the numbers, to look at statistics and narrow those statistics down to one basic statistic, your on-base percentage. And uh, he created a computer algorithm to kind of work that out. And he convinced Billy Bean that the scouts needed to spend less time looking at the intangibles and trying to evaluate on just what they saw and instead look to see what kind of numbers were being produced, especially that on-base percentage. Uh, I want to show you a little clip from the movie where Peter Brand convinces Billy Bean to give this a try. Let's, let's watch. Using this methodology of evaluating players was so counterintuitive that most of the folks in Major League Baseball thought Billy Bean and Peter Brand were crazy. And when they started the 2002 season with their Island of Misfit Toys, players that were often overlooked because they were evaluated by a different standard, uh, it looked like they had made a big mistake. But halfway through the season, the, the team started to gel and, in fact, went on to accomplished the the longest winning streak in American League history. And with the smallest payroll in baseball, they won their division, winning 103 games. Now, there's a lot of lessons that could be learned there about the 2002 Oakland A's and Billy Bean. But but here's the lesson I want us to consider this morning. When it comes to evaluations of people, When it comes to evaluating what's important in life, when it comes to evaluating what really matters, you gotta know what really matters, what's truly important. Because if you don't know what's truly important, you'll end up looking for the wrong things and investing your life in the wrong way. If you don't know what's important, you won't recognize what's important even when it's staring you in the face. And Jesus tells us, the Bible tells us, that there is a day coming for you and for me and everyone who walks this planet where we stand before the Almighty God of the universe to give an account of our lives, what we did, what was important to us, how we invested our time, our energy, our resources, what we valued. And in that moment, when we stand before the Lord to give an account of our lives, what will matter most is not what we thought was important. But what God says is important. That's the standard of measure. That's the one number by which God evaluates His standards, not ours. So welcome back to the series that we began a few weeks ago, looking at the life and teachings of Jesus We believe Jesus came to this world to show us that He's the Son of the living God and to teach us God's standards so we'll understand what God values and order our lives around it. And right now we're looking at some of the miracles that Jesus performed. And uh, as we look at these miracles, we're noticing two things. First of all, these miracles are proclaiming Jesus as the Lord of all. That Jesus is, in fact, the Savior, the Son of God. No one could do the miracles Jesus did except Jesus because that's 
who He was. He was the Savior, the Son of God. The miracles authenticate His identity. The other thing we're noticing about the miracles is that the miracles have a message for us. There's a teaching, a truth to be found in those miracles. And we're looking at the miracles to say, what's the message and how do I apply it to my life? And so today we're going to be looking at the miracle of Jesus cursing the fig tree. And if you have a Bible, you want to follow along, we're in Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 18. And as you're turning there, uh, let me just say this about this particular miracle. People are uncomfortable with this miracle. People don't like this miracle. Because it's unlike any miracle Jesus ever performed. If you look in the Gospels, you'll notice all the miracles Jesus performed brought life, brought healing, brought hope. Jesus healed the, the sick. He, taught the, he, he allowed the, the lame to walk. He caused the blind to see. He rose people from the dead. Jesus' miracles brought life and healing and wholeness. But this one miracle, the cursing of the fig tree, brings death, destruction, cursing instead of blessing. And because of that, a lot of people are uncomfortable with it. Because that's not the Jesus we like to think about. But this is a part of Jesus' ministry, so we need to pay attention to it, even if we don't particularly like it. Here's what I figured out a long time ago about Jesus. He does some things I don't like. But just because I don't like it doesn't mean it isn't true. Right? See, here's the challenge we have as modern-day Americans. We're taught that if I don't like something, I don't like it because it must not be true. Not necessarily. Right? You go outside, find the parking lot, you have a flat tire. You probably won't like that. But your tire will still be flat. See, some things we don't like turn out to be true. We got two presidential candidates. I don't like it. So it is with Jesus. He says some things that make us a little uncomfortable. He says some things that we struggle with. He says some things we don't like, but it doesn't mean it isn't true. Can I get an amen on that? All right, so let's take a look at this. Just to kind of give you a little bit of context about this story. It's the last week in Jesus' life. He's already made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. He's declared himself to be the Messiah. He, he got off that donkey and he went into the temple where he cleared out the money changers and the people selling animals for sacrifice. And he said, this is my father's house. It's a house of prayer. You are turning it into a den of thieves. And then he spent the rest of the day teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God, healing people, doing amazing things to declare that he is the Messiah. He's bringing God's kingdom. And then at the end of the day, he and his disciples, they leave the temple. They leave the city of Jerusalem. They travel about two miles to this little town, a little suburb known as Bethany, where they spend the night. And then the next morning, this is where the story starts, Jesus gets up and he and his disciples are heading back the two-mile journey from Bethany back into Jerusalem for another day of teaching and healing and dealing with all sorts of things. And and as as they're on the journey, Jesus is hungry and he sees a large, beautiful fig tree by the side of the road, all full of leaves and and beautiful, and Jesus goes there to see if he can get some fruit that he can eat to kind of sustain him for his journey and for the day. And as he goes there, he looks up into the tree, sees the beautiful leaves, but he doesn't see any fruit. No fruit. Lots of leaves, no fruit. And according to the story here, Jesus says to the fruit tree, he talks to the fig tree and he says, may you never bear fruit again. And then immediately, the fig tree withered. It died. 
Dried up and died right there. And the disciples are amazed at this. And Jesus says to him, he says, hey, you're amazed at this? Guess what? If you believe in the power of prayer and faith, and you pray in my name, you'll do greater things than these. You'll say to the mountain, be cast in the sea, and it'll be done. Nothing will be impossible for you if you pray the way I teach you to pray. And, and there's a lesson to be learned there about prayer and, and, and the power of prayer, but that's not the lesson for this morning. I promise you, later on in this series, we're going to talk about what Jesus has to teach us about prayer. We'll get to that bit about mountains going into the sea and that sort of thing. But what I want us to focus on today is the miracle itself, because there is a message in that miracle that we need to see. We need to see the important truth that Jesus is communicating in the message. And and here's the message. Jesus is looking for fruit. Jesus is looking for fruit. See, uh, Bible scholars point out that part of this message is directed at the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel in Scripture is often uh, likened to a fig tree. In fact, they were called God's fig tree. They saw themselves as a fig tree. It's kind of the symbol of their nation. Imagine in contemporary terms, if Jesus were alive today, walking around America, preaching and teaching and healing, and then he curses an eagle, a bald eagle, and it falls out of the sky, we'd say, he's got something to say to America, right? By cursing the fig tree, Jesus is saying something to first century Israel. They were called to be the people of God, God's holy nation. They were to be the physical embodiment of the great psalm that said, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. They were supposed to show the rest of the world how to live. And God had entrusted them with incredible resources and wealth and His Word and opportunity and freedom and blessing. And they were blowing it. They were blowing it. Yeah, they had a form of religion. They had their high priests. They had their holy temple. They had their sacrificial system. But they weren't bearing any fruit. They weren't really living the life. In fact, they had drifted over time. They'd lost their sense of mission as a nation, as a people. They were no longer a light to the other nation. And God had warned them. God had sent prophets to warn them. But they didn't listen. They were all leaves. No fruit. And by cursing the fig tree, Jesus is communicating a message to them. And in fact, he's predicting the fall of Jerusalem that would happen about 38 years later under the hands of the Roman Empire. The destruction was God's judgment on their people for their lack of faithfulness, their lack of fruitfulness. And friends, I don't think we should confuse modern day America with first century Israel. But can I say this? If the shoe fits, we ought to wear it. And there are some principles that apply. Here's the principle that applies. God judges nations and kingdoms and princes and rulers. God holds leaders and nations accountable for what they do. He will execute judgment on those who are unfaithful. Not just those who should know better, but those who should know better but don't do better. Those who have tasted His goodness and grace and treated it casually. Those who have experienced the eternal riches of His kingdom and turn their backs on it in order to pursue the toys and trinkets that the world says is important, those who are making the wrong evaluations about what really matters and why, God will judge. Listen, listen. we must never mistake God's patience for weakness or leniency. Romans 11.22 says this, Consider the kindness and severity of the Lord. Both. He is kind, but He also 
acts in judgment when necessary. The Bible says he is slow to anger. He's slow to anger. Doesn't mean he doesn't get angry. You know who talked more about the wrath and judgment of God than anybody else who ever lived? Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. I think we have to take it seriously. We don't like it. But just because we don't like it doesn't mean it isn't true. Amen? We modern day Americans should take heart that God eventually judges nations, kingdoms, rulers. God gives us resources, freedom to make choices, incredible opportunities, but then He holds us accountable for what we do with all of that. Choices have consequences. Now that's the historical application. The the nation of Israel began to fall apart. Human arrogance, spiritual apathy, moral decline and decay that characterized the nation. All the while, they had leaves, they had leaves, but they were not bearing fruit. Do you think any of this applies today? Now, the personal application, in addition to a historical application that I think we as modern-day Americans need to pay attention to, I think there's a personal application that we as individual Christians need to pay attention to as well. And it doesn't make us comfortable, but we need to hear it. God is evaluating our lives and He's looking for fruit. And He is the ultimate judge of what is fruit. See, here's the truth about me. I've been raised on the pop psychology, self-esteem of the 60s, 70s, 80s, right? So I tend to think what's really important is how I think about myself. That I think well of myself. That I remind myself of my essential goodness, my great possibilities for the future, and then I pick up my trophy on the way out the door and pat myself on the back about how good I am. But here's the reality. Doesn't matter what I think about myself. Matters what God thinks about me. Now the good news of Scripture is, God wants to pour out His love, grace, and goodness on us. But the other side of that is, once we receive God's grace and goodness, we're expected to respond to it with faithfulness and devotion. We're supposed to bear fruit. And the criterion and standard that God is going to judge us on is not did we understand that He loves us, but did we bear fruit in response to the love He's poured out upon us. Can I get an amen on that? See, Jesus wants us to know, He doesn't want to miss this, that what really matters, the number is what did I do with the grace that God has given me, the forgiveness He's offered me, the Holy Spirit that's dwelling within me? Do, do I just go around talking about how nice my leaves are, or do I bear authentic fruit for His kingdom? When we stand before the Lord, He's going to ask, where's your faithfulness? Show me how you were faithful to me in this life. Show me how you were devoted to me in this life. Show me how your servant's heart was demonstrated in this life. Show me how you were generous with what I gave you and entrusted to you in this life. Show me how you were willing to sacrifice for me in this life. See, I just think that's a warning for us to heed. You know, the Lord warns us on the day of judgment. He said, many will call me Lord, Lord, and I'll say to you, I didn't know you. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will be fit to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, some people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are really far from me. See, the fruit that the Lord is looking for becomes evident in the way we live our lives, the way we spend our time, the desires we cultivate, 
the thoughts we think, the way we treat other people, especially people we don't particularly like, the words we speak, the energy we we invest in the things that God says really matters. That's the kind of fruit He's looking for. Not just the leaves, but the fruit of our lives. Where's the fruit? That's what Jesus asks. You know, uh, award-winning investigative journalist Petra Resky uh, spent several years uh, doing in-depth research on the Italian mafia. And she wrote a book called The Honored Society, which is a real eye-opener about the life of an Italian mafioso. But the thing that surprised her the most, one of the things that surprised her the most, was how deeply religious many of these Italian mafia were. Hitman Marcello Fava went through a ritual. In fact, he explained to her that most of his fellow hitmen went through the same ritual that they had developed before they would go out and do a mob hit. They would get down on their knees, they would make the sign of the cross, and then they would pray, Dear God, stand by me and keep me safe. While they're going out to kill somebody for the mob. Mob boss Bernardo Provenzano was finally arrested, and when law enforcement went into his mansion to gather evidence, they found dozens of Bibles. Bibles in practically every room. And one Bible in particular, by his bedstand at night, where he'd obviously done a lot of reading, There were verses underlined on almost every page, notes in the margin. He had really read the Bible. He got into the Word. But the Word never got into him. In fact, in his mansion, there were 93 statues. Sacred statues. The Virgin Mary, the Angel Gabriel. 71 of these statues were of Jesus. And all the statues of Jesus had the same inscription on them that said, Jesus... I put my trust in you. This is the mob boss. Michele Greco, another hitman, was interviewed in prison about how he could have such a clear conscience in spite of killing so many people. And he said, oh, he said, every time after I killed somebody, I would I would go to church and I would pray and I would ask Jesus to forgive me. And then Jesus would flood my soul with inner peace. And then he'd go out and kill somebody else. Friends, think about this. Bibles, prayers, statues with inscriptions, spiritual talk about inner peace. It's all a bunch of leaves in the lives of the Italian mafia. And while we might be shocked at their hypocrisy, they serve as a cautionary tale for you and me about how easy it is for us to fool ourselves, to honor the Lord with our lips, while our hearts are far from it. Where's the fruit? Where's the fruit? That's the warning in this miracle. That's the message. Take a look at Galatians chapter 5. This is one of the great passages of the New Testament where the Bible describes for us what kind of fruit God is looking for in our lives as we invest ourselves in the things that He says matters most. Let's read this out loud together. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-discipline. That's the fruit. Right? Good question you and I can ask ourselves. Am I more loving now than I was this time a year ago? Am I more joyful? Do I experience more of the peace that passes all understanding? Am I kinder? Am I more patient? Am I pursuing goodness and faithfulness? Am I more self-disciplined? 
And parents, parents, hear this. This is, this is what we should be developing in our children. These kinds of character qualities that set them up to recognize what's truly valuable so they can invest themselves in it wisely and well. I'm not saying it's not important for your kid to do well in soccer or swim team or whatever they're into. And I'm not suggesting SAT scores aren't important and all that stuff is fine. But at the end of the day, to pursue all of that and neglect this, to spend so much of our time pushing our kids, you better get better at that, you better get better at that. Do we invest that kind of time saying, hey, we need to really focus on how, how we become more loving, how we can be more patient, and are we modeling that for them? See, that's this is what our Lord is getting at. Lots of ways to excel in life. This is how we want to excel. When we excel this way, everything else begins to fall into place. That's why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and its righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. If you're having problems in your marriage, can I say this? If you're having problems in your marriage, it's right here. It's lack of the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, the problems in your marriage are a great opportunity to start practicing the fruit. God wants to use that. You, you're frustrated with your boss at work. You're irritated with your neighbors. You're struggling with a bunch of stuff. You're lacking peace. Don't feel condemned. Recognize that's an invitation to bear fruit. Right? And here's the good news. Because, you know, this is kind of a downer of a Anybody else kind of feel like this is a downer of a sermon? Gee, somebody go, man, I picked the wrong day to come to church today. Right? <laughs> I thought I was supposed to leave church feeling good. Right now... I want to find that mafia hitman and stick him on Mark. We don't want you to leave here feeling bad this morning. That's why we want to offer not a word of, just a word of warning, but a word of encouragement. Because here's the truth. Jesus never gives us a warning without offering us a promise. Jesus never gives us a problem without offering us a solution. He never gives us a command without giving us the resources we need to obey the command. So here's the good news. And we see it. We see it in Scripture. The good news is it's not too late. If you don't feel like you're bearing much fruit, it's not too late. Right? The the good news is forgiveness is available. Jesus doesn't expect us to be perfect. He doesn't. He offers us forgiveness. He doesn't expect us to be perfect, but He does expect us to make progress, and you don't make progress by accident. You don't make progress by haphazard, occasionally trying. You make progress how? By disciplining yourself and training yourself to godliness. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, he says, train yourself towards godliness. That requires a level of intentionality and devotion that Jesus is looking for. Aren't we all amazed that Michael Phelps won all these gold medals and the U.S. women's gymnastic team winning all these gold, all these, all these American Olympic athletes doing so well. It's great to see. Can you imagine Michael Phelps after winning a gold medal gets interviewed by the, the, the local press and they say, Michael, how did you get to be such a, an amazing swimmer? And he says, well, I don't know. Just jumped in a pool one day, started swimming around. Yeah, here I am. No, how did he get that way? Very intentional. Hard work, training, discipline, thinking about what he was trying to accomplish, evaluating himself as he went along. See, that we as God's people who are pursuing a trophy that will never rust or fade away, something greater than a a medal you hang around your neck, if we as God's people would have that level of devotion, commitment to training ourselves to godliness, 
What impact could we make on our kids, our grandkids, our neighbors, our workplace, our marriages, our world? Could you imagine? God can. That's the vision He's planted in our heart. You know what breaks Jesus' heart? It's not that people fall short of the standard. That's not what breaks Jesus' heart. What breaks Jesus' heart is how little effort so many people put into trying to grow towards the standard. He doesn't demand perfection, but He does expect fruit, and fruit only comes with intentional effort. Are you ready to train yourself for godliness? Because the church offers resources to help people with that. The point of the story from Luke's Gospel Chapter 13 is, a, is that there, there's, a, there's another opportunity for us. Right? That, that was the other story we heard today. Jesus tells a story about a guy who owns a big vineyard and he's got a bunch of fig trees, and, or an orchard rather, not a vineyard. He's got, he, he's got a bunch of fig trees and he, he goes out one day, he sees this fig tree that's been bugging him. This fig tree that's been growing for three years, sucking up nutrients out of the soil, sprouting leaves, but no fruit, no fruit. And finally, he's had enough. He calls the, the orchard gardener over and he says, Hey, hey, I'm sick of this tree. It's not bearing fruit. It's been here for three years. Taking up resources. Cut it down. And the orchard gardener says, Hold, 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 hold it. But before we do that, can we give it one more year? One more year. Let, let me dig around the roots. Give it some air. Let me, let me put some, some fertilizer in. Let me give this a, a, another more intentional opportunity and let's see what happens. And then, then after a year, if it doesn't bear fruit, okay, we cut it down. And apparently the orchard owner goes along with it. And the message here is meant to encourage us. There's still time. And there's still resources. See, we are, we are still in a place where God is trusting that we'll respond to His Word by training ourselves towards godliness and doing the work to bear good fruit. He's not given up on us. He's encouraging us to keep going. And the church is really all about providing resources to help people to train themselves to godliness. We offer community and encouragement and worship and Bible study and small groups and mission trips, all kinds of opportunities, experiences and environments that help us train ourselves toward godliness. The church is not perfect. We know that, right? We're the presence of Christ in the world, as imperfect as we might be. Jesus isn't asking us to be perfect. He's asking us to bear fruit. Right now we're living in an age of grace. We're living in a time where God is looking to see, how are you going to use the resources I've entrusted to you? Your time, your talents, your abilities, your skills. How are you using it? Are you recognizing what's really important and evaluating in terms of that? Or are you pursuing the the lesser things? the toys and trinkets. I'm offering you a chance to bear fruit. So let's let's make sure we don't interpret God's patience as weakness or leniency. Let's make sure we understand that though God is slow to anger, doesn't mean He never gets angry. Our Lord is expecting fruit and there will come a day when the fruit inspector will be looking at your life and my life, and if all he sees is leaves, we're going to be disappointed and he's going to be disappointed. So let's do our part. Jesus doesn't demand perfection, but he does expect fruit. And fruit doesn't happen by accident. 